When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Shake your hand. I have too much in my No, I don't. <laughs> Drinking and talking. Good stuff. Yeah. yeah. So I don't want to disillusion anyone, but we didn't watch the film. We just drank in a bar. Do you, do you re-watch your films ever? Um, no. Um, you make some of the most rewatchable films ever, where if you're drinking at midnight and Magic Mike comes on, you're, you know you're going to be up for two hours. Well, that's... that's... <laughs> That's good to know. Um, no, I, I don't. Not out of any, uh, not out of any sort of principled stance of, of, you know. Oh my God, you know. I mean, to, to some extent, when they're done, they're kind of dead. Um, but I also, it's funny when I watch films made by heroes of mine, uh, recent films. Um, I'll, I'll think, wow, they should really go back and watch the early stuff again, because this has sort of drifted, you know, from from the place that that I drew inspiration from. So now that that doesn't mean that I'm going to go back and like I actually believe it or not, I actually think I still have my best stuff in front of me. Like, I always feel like the next the next thing is going to be the thing. Um, but it's a, it's a, I think your relationship with things that you've done is, is sort of complicated. The reaction has no connection to your experience of it. Um, you know, whether it's from a commercial standpoint or a critical standpoint, I've made things that people seem to like a lot that I, that I look back and think, uh, you know, I, I wish I'd done things differently. And I've had things that I was really, really happy with that people hated. So it's sort of, it's just, you just, like I said, you just kind of keep your head down and your feet moving and just keep going. And 50 years from now, somebody can sort it out. Right. Now you're famous for re-editing other legendary directors' works. Would you do that to your own if you started I'm doing it, watching I'm working, it? I've been working at no one's request on Kafka <laughs> for 14 years. Um, I have an idea. Um, I have an approach. Um, it was a movie I was never really happy with, even at the time. And uh, the rights actually reverted back to, to me and the, the producer um, 14 years ago. And the producer called me and said, I know you were never happy with this. Would you like to go back in and sort of work on it? And I said, yeah, I would. Um, he's still waiting. And, um, <laughs> you know, it was, that was a movie in which I made a classic young filmmaker's mistake, I think, which was the tone is uneven. Tone, tone is the hardest thing to, to sort of maintain. Um, and... The, the classic young filmmaker's mistake, I think, is moment to moment to be uh, attracted to an idea that in, it, in front of you may seem like something that's interesting or entertaining or compelling, and but you don't have enough knowledge or distance from it to consider whether or not in the overall picture of the film, whether or not this is something that should actually be in the film. And so that was a movie that I just felt like I never had control of the tone. And so the, the, the re-edit is sort of designed to kind of bring the whole thing um, into a, a, a kind of organized space, starting with the fact that I think it was a mistake that that movie was in English. So that won't be the case now. I did shoot some inserts, um, actually, when we were doing side effects, 20... 
yeah, 20, 23 years after the wrap of principal photography. Uh, we shot some inserts on the set of side effects in black and white film. I still had some cans left over. And um, yeah, so it's, uh, it still lives. But the idea is to sort of make, I'm calling it the midnight edition. It's, kind of, it's very weird. Like it's, you know, I, didn't, I didn't solve any of the problems. I just sort of mitigated them by making it so weird that um, you're, you're, you're so distracted by the weirdness that you don't notice that it doesn't make any sense. I certainly didn't expect to talk about cop for the night. Nobody does. There's a great story about Harrison Ford, this movie he made called Hanover Street. Um, the year after Star Wars, which was kind of a legendary folly. And uh, he gave an interview once uh, when somebody asked him about it. He said, when 10 people come up to me and say they really loved it, I'll watch it. <laughs> <laughs> but not until then. What do you have right now? I'm at one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's see, one. <laughs> so, anyway. uh, so Haywire actually begins with a movie you didn't direct. Um, and the last time we talked, I wanted to ask you about this movie, but I thought you were going to get angry at me, so I drank a few Singani mules to muster up the courage. <laughs> and that movie's Moneyball, right. which I wanted to know your vision. You said it was going to be the most realistic baseball movie ever made. That sounded awesome. Uh, but that leads to Haywire. Could you right. tell them about how that occurred? Yeah, so... The short version is, you know, three days before shooting Moneyball, um, I, you could, depending on which side of the issue um, you were on, I was either, uh, I was fired. Um, <laughs> so what happened, what I realized very quickly was, um, after taking sort of 72 hours to, to try and objectively assess why this had happened and why this had gone down this way, then, um, that Monday, this was, I was, I was given the boot like the Thursday before we were going to start shooting on a Monday. And that Monday, um, you know, I had 175 people that thought they were going to work on Monday. Mm -hmm. And so my immediate concern was, we need to find something to do now, like right away. Like all these people thought they were going to have a job and they don't have a job. So just by chance, um, there was this fight, uh, this MMA fight coming up on network television. I've been looking. I looked around for weeks on on for material. Um, I pursued a couple of things uh, that, that, in retrospect, um, I, I thought I had a good idea, but the people involved uh, didn't think I had a good idea. It was a weird place to be in. Like it was. It's not. It's not typical when you get sort of booted off a movie for that story to be on the front page of the New York Times. Um, and so there was a lot of, people weren't quite sure what to make of all this. Like, what did this, what did this mean? Like, what happened? Um, so I saw this fight. I saw Gina Carano um, fighting. And, and I thought, wow, she's really compelling. Um, and I, I called... Lem Dobbs, who I'd worked with before on Kafka, and, uh, and the Limey. I said, look, I'm thinking of making, uh, what about making a, a sort of um, lean and mean action movie with this woman at the center of it? And he, he was excited by that. And so I, I, by the time this all happened, she, um, she had just been in a fight with uh, another uh, female MMA fighter named Cyborg. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think you can imagine how that turned out. Gina, yeah, but so I went down to, I took the train down from Los Angeles to San Diego to see Gina in the aftermath of this fight. Um, I said, look, I, I, I want to do, I want to build this thing around you, basically. Is that something that appeals to you at all? And she said, yeah, I think, you know, I think it was, in that moment, that sounded like a really good idea to her. So we started, we got it together very quickly. And I guess the idea was I'd, over the years, been in conversations. Of, I'd been approached twice about uh, doing a Bond film. Mm -hmm. 
and it never quite, you know, got anywhere. And this was, in some ways, my my opportunity to do what I would do with a Bond movie in a way. And also, I was like, why, why aren't why aren't action movies beautiful to look at? Just shot to shot. Why, why just because you're making an action film, why can't it just why can't it be beautiful? Um, and so we just kind of, like I said, it all it all kind of came together rapidly, and and we shot it. And then we were in post for a long time. Um, I did a couple rounds of reshoots. Um, David Holmes and I sort of retooled the score, and. Um, then we were given this um, February release date, which at the time seemed like a really good idea, but it turned out, um, it was like the weekend, I think it was the Friday after the Oscar nominations came out, and um, we just, you know, it was, it was, nobody saw it. I, I, I sort of use it as a metric now when people, when a movie opens and you read about, oh God, you know, this was a real, you know, this, this distributor or studio is taking a real hit on this movie. I always compare it to like, hey, what? <laughs> Meaning like, that wasn't that, come on, that wasn't that bad. Or if it was less than that, it's like, wow, that's, that's horrible. Um, so, but it was, as an experience, it was something I always, I had a really, you know, fond memory of. Boy, Pack Bounce tonight, so... Yeah. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> Williamsburg. <laughs> Maybe we only should have opened here. So how? Quick <laughs> so how? Quick? I mean, that, that's the new. That's the thing. It's like, well, what if you just open? What if you just open the movie in one theater and let it run for like two years? <laughs> well, it would have done better than what we did. <laughs> Maybe the the new constant. Yeah. Constant. Exactly. <laughs> oh well, that that'll be the next event we do. It'll be the new Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. Yeah, if people can speak German. <laughs> it's going to be in German. <laughs> so you love using non-actors. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Moneyball was apparently going to star Art Hal, Jeremy Giambi. There were 20, there were our version of Moneyball, like 27 of the real people that experienced that story cast and playing themselves. Yeah. This is kind of your first movie. Art Howe was a movie star. This guy was a combination of Gene Hackman and James Cromwell. Like he was, he was awesome. I loved him. <laughs> so let's put him in the movie. Yeah, no, I, you know, I should. And when I met Michael Lewis, after you know, pretty far into the development process, and he said, "Okay, you've, you know, you've talked to everybody. You've done your research. You know." What did I get wrong? And I go, well, I don't know if you got anything wrong, but I don't think you feed it. You didn't treat Art Howe fairly. No. I go, I felt like because he didn't want to talk to you, that he 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 didn't get the kind of um, he, he wasn't given the sort of benefit of the doubt that a lot of other people were. And he was like, yeah, that's probably true. You know, at the time, I I. The fact that he didn't want to talk to me, you know, affected how I felt about the whole thing. The players loved Art. I mean, they loved him. Like, when we got everybody together, and they, they really liked him a lot. He was impressive. Um, so, yeah. But, you know, the bottom line is, if Moneyball doesn't fall apart, and I don't make Haywire, I don't need Channing, and I'm really glad I met Channing. <laughs> like, my life's been a lot better for having that chance. <laughs> so you just, that's the way you have to look at it. It's like that door closes, another door opens. Like you can't, you can't get stuck in that moment of, of sort of uh, failure, whatever you want to call it. Like you have to, you just have to push. I think most people are probably excited to move from Art Howe to Channing Tatum. Yeah. So <laughs> at that point, Art, uh, Art Howe's always been a serious actor, but Channing Tatum was kind of more seen as you know, a honk. He'd been in Stop Loss, which was fantastic. But uh, what made you think he, you know, had the goods to, you know, kind of become part of your repertory company from then on? Well, he had. He just. I didn't feel like he was fronting about who he was. Like he seemed to have a very sort of genuine quality and a sincerity that I think is not impossible to fake, but hard. And so. Um, 
I met him and we talked, and and then the first day of shooting, the first day of shooting with Channing was the the opening scene of the film. And he came in and he goes, look, um, I, here's what I'm thinking, is that I'm gonna I'm gonna play it like I've been up all night and I've been out and I got this call and. I'm hungover and I don't want to be here. And that's not what was written. And I love how he asked for a beer. Yeah. And I went, okay, let's, well, yeah, that sounds interesting. Like, let's let's do that. And so I felt like here's here's somebody who, he's been thinking about it, but not in a, in a sort of a way that makes you go, oh my God, you know, are we ever going to, be able to get through this scene, like somebody's come in with an idea that I, I can't, I can't, that doesn't work and I'm just now going to have to figure out how to, how to not use that idea and, you know, not make them feel bad and get through the scene, but I was like, no, that makes, that absolutely makes sense because we have no, at this point, we have no context for any of this. We don't really know her and we definitely don't know him. We just, we just have a sense of him from her reaction seeing him get out of the car. So the more of a head fake he does, the better. And, and he played it really well. I was like, I like this kid. Like, I, you know, I was like, okay, I like him. And then as the shoot went on, you know, we talked more and more. And when we were doing the, the sequence at the house near the end, um, we were standing around at one point. And I said, oh, I know... I know you have a production company, like what kind of stuff are you developing? And he sort of, he told me like the three or four things that they were developing. And this would have been April 2010. And he said, oh, and then I'm kind of developing this thing about when I was 19 years old in Tampa and I was a stripper. And I went, what? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, I mean, it was this kind of crazy period. And I go, dude, that's gold. Like that's Saturday Night Fever. Like what? Is, I go. So what are you doing with it? And he goes. Well, we have a director, but we don't have the script, and you know, I don't. I don't really know where it's going. I go. That's a massive idea. I go. If you, if if this doesn't move forward, like if something doesn't happen with this, like you need to call me, because that's a that's a fucking giant idea. And he goes, oh, okay. And so, a year later, um, he calls me on the phone and goes, that director has dropped off the project. Wow. And I go, meet me, I don't know if you've been to Los Angeles, I go, meet me at Carney's, the hot dog train on Sunset, uh, at 11.20 on Sunday, because that's where I am. And I go, I'm going to lay out for you how we're going to do this. And that's how that started. So, like I said, I'm, it's, it's, you just have to, to kind of sort of key off, you have to key off what's in front of you. You know what I mean? Like this was, we had this conversation, I thought it was a great idea. A year later, you know, he follows up and then we get to go do that, which was really fun. And, and all of that came out of what, you know, from most perspectives would have been like a terrible work moment, you know, which is like being fired. So, yeah. you know. I think we should just watch it right now. Love Magic Mike. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I, that's a, they had a double bill out here a couple of weeks, July 4th weekend. Metrograph, I think, did a did a double bill. Of, but, uh, did Channing Tatum dance on set? Uh, no, no, he didn't. I didn't know Channing could dance on that at all. Set? No. Is that your question? <laughs> no. Yeah, he did not. I didn't know he could dance. And I didn't it didn't really matter. So um, you option did you just option his idea before he could No, we just started. Like we just we that the Monday after the Carney's meeting. Um, <laughs> we just started. Like we got in a room with Reed Carolyn, his partner, who's a writer, and we just started. Like I said, we gotta I go, we gotta start shooting. The, the day after, the Monday after Labor Day, we have to start shooting. So it's April now, and I flew to Cannes in May after we talked and sold enough territories to like finance the movie. And you know, this was like, we're not waiting for permission. This is my, this is my advice to everybody doing anything. Is like, don't wait for permission. 
So you sold territories just on Channing Tatum will be dancing shirts. Absolutely. We shot, no, we shot in my producer's uh, bathroom, we shot a two-minute video of Channing shaving his legs uh, to, um, oh God, what song was it? It was... Is that on any deleted scenes anyway? No. It was, it was Kiss. I just want to kiss. What was that song? No, 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 no. Kiss. Yeah. Um, anyway, we did this two-minute thing of him like shaving his legs in the bathtub, um, and that's how we raised the money. <laughs> it's pretty. If I could get the rights to the song, it was pretty. It was fun. It, my my producer's fourteen-year-old son was very disturbed <laughs> by all of this because we did it in his bathroom, <laughs> but it worked. Uh, so the choreography for the fight scenes in Haywire. Who's responsible for that? Is that Gina, you? There's a, there's a company in L.A. called uh, 8711, and they do the, a lot of these things. Like, this is what they do. Like, you, they've done, they're, they're listed, you know, they do all the, the really great fight stuff. And so we went to them and said, well, you know, we want to do something that's realistic. Like, no wires, no, none of that. Like, it's yeah. all got to be... Um, sort of possible and so they just worked on it they would work on it and work on it they would shoot stuff and show it to me and I go oh that's good except for this part and um, so they're doing this with the actors yeah yeah with the real yeah. they would do it sort of on their own for a bit and then they would bring the cast in and you know which I think I have a theory that you know any kind of proficiency on screen is just really compelling. For instance, the Day of the Jackal, there's no reason this movie should work at all. We know Degault did not get assassinated. And yet, the, Michelle Lonsdale is playing the investigator and Edward Fox, who's playing the Jackal, are so good at their jobs that you're rooting actually for both of them. You know, after Edward Fox like shoots the melon, you know, with the gun that he designed, you know, you're like, okay, I'm down with this guy. <laughs> you're like, it's, it, it, it makes, on paper, like, it makes no sense that this should work at all, and yet, what I think it is, is it's really fun to watch people who are really good at something. And so that's what I found compelling about Gina, was like, well, okay, if you have somebody, first of all, she's very arresting to look at, like, her head should be on, her head should be on the side of a coin or a $20 bill. Like, she's just very... She has a sort of classic features, and watching somebody who can actually do it, and you know that's her. The, the, my favorite shot in the whole film is the running shot, pulling her down that alley in Barcelona where she's running as fast as she possibly can. She was chasing like this ATV that I was sitting on you know, with a camera in the back. <laughs> and she's just, she's just a panther. And she's literally got, if you watch, the, the lining of her jacket is like literally like a, a leopard print. Like, it's subtle, but you can see it. And she's just run. and the, I held the shot as long as it was good, because I just thought, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> she's, she's just so fucking cool. And so, you know, that was, that was really what, what was compelling to me. And... Like I said, during post, we were watching the. We actually ended up adding two. We added two scenes, uh, two more sort of fight things, because I felt like we just we need more. You know, I just want to see more of that. Like I just want to see. I just want to see her like punching people. <laughs> Not shaving her legs in a fourteen-year-old's bathroom. No, no. So a travel writer friend of mine wanted me to ask this question. I don't think it's a great question, but. <laughs> he thinks that's a great question. So Dublin, Barcelona, and specifically the Shelbourne Hotel, you know, what do they add to the movie? Is there a reason? Good tax breaks or... Yeah. No, that's what it was. But, um, <laughs> but also, we were... Yeah, you're always looking for, well, where can we go where we'll get a deal? But also, I was like, Dublin, like, I haven't... Uh, when was the last time I saw a movie that was set in Dublin? And why don't let's go there? Like, and at Barcelona, I don't know if anybody in this room has been to Barcelona. 
it's stunning. It's just, it's, it's one of the most beautiful cities on the planet. And so when it became obvious, like, financially, you know, it works for us to go to Barcelona, or at least it's not, it's not any more expensive than some other cities, you know, in Germany or whatever. I'm like, no, let's, then let's go. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't by most, you know, by most standards, this wasn't an expensive film to make. It was $20 million. So um, I thought, great, let's do that. Um, and I think there's some, it's fun to travel. It's always frustrating to me to see a movie in which I feel like they weren't willing to travel, you know, whether you can tell like they never went there or there's just some sense of the whole thing being sort of directed from the back of the limousine. Um, and, and it's fun to go, you know, it's fun to go there. It's fun to like go to, go somewhere and like be there. Yeah, yeah. Um, these characters feel like people you could revisit. Is there any thought ever in a sequel, a little Haywire and Furious or Fast and Haywire, a sequel action? Well, yeah, you know, I think all of that, is obviously dependent upon whether or not people go see the first one. Always. <laughs> um, so we had, as we were nearing the end of filming, you know, I said to Ewan, you know, well, there's kind of a great, there's kind of a great opening scene in the second one where you're like putting on a foot, you know, like, you're putting on like a fake foot, you know, because you don't have a foot anymore, and that's like the beginning of the second one. Oh yeah. Um, I felt bad for him because we did these two reshoots and he had to get that awful fucking haircut <laughs> three times. <laughs> and I said, I'm so sorry. He goes, no, my wife likes it. Um, but no, I thought like, oh, well, that's how you open it. You know, that she's, he's obsessed with her and he's going to track her down and kill her if it's the last thing. It's like, there's a perfect jumping off point to start a second one. It's just, you know, it's uh, nobody, nobody was asking. Um, there was for a while some t somebody was like, "Do you want to do it as a TV show?" And I said, "No, I don't. You can, but I don't." Maybe we'll, I'll option it for you. There you go. After party. Okay, let's shift to another passion of yours, another passion of mine, booze. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I found a quote on the internet from you that I think's the best quote anyone on the internet has oh, ever said. Oh yeah, because that's. Better than anyone. So reliable. So you can say if you didn't say this quote. So here's the quote. I know I could outdrink Che Guevara. There's no question. He used to dilute his wine with water, which is really strange. I know I can drink him under the table, and then I could take his gun. So you can tell people if you actually said that. But more likely, you know, you can tell us how Che relates to Singani and what you would do if you took his gun if you have time. <laughs> Uh, that's absolutely true. I did say that, <laughs> and it's it's inherently true. Should be on a quote quote a day calendar. Oh yeah, no, he he uh, he was a thimble belly and um, and and was really kind of um, I think really looked down on people who drink a lot. Um, so you know, this is one of the many. This is the thing. Like when we made those movies, there, there's the assumption which which indicates a real lack of understanding about how art works, that if I make a movie about Che, it must be because I believe everything he believes. Right. And and that's just not the case, and that's never the case when you're making a movie. You're, the point is to not editorialize. Everybody in this room believes that the way they behave is the way they should behave. And so everybody's like writing their own narrative as they go through their life. And this guy just happened to have a really interesting life. Um, that being said, um, you know, I don't, if I got his gun, I, I think I would, I would take his gun not because I wanted to use it, but just because I wouldn't want him to have it um, <laughs> and, and while we were hanging out together. So you put him in the same place? Yeah, yeah, just, just so, that, um, so that things don't escalate. But... Um, <laughs> But yeah, as it happened, so I was at the startup party for the film. Um, I was given a bottle of Singani by our Bolivian casting director. And um, 
I said, what is this? He goes, oh, it's kind of the national spirit of Bolivia. And um, I just thought it would be, a, you know, an appropriate startup gift. Um, and it's great to work in a business where you get startup gifts. You know? <laughs> sure, if you work at an insurance company, you know, people don't give you gifts on your first day of work. Right, it takes 30 years. To yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I go, well, how do you drink it? He goes, well, I drink it on the rocks. So I go, great, crack it open, let's start. And so I had a couple of these, and um, I sought him out and said, okay, tell what, what is this? Like, tell me more about this. Like, how is it made? What's going on? So he told me the backstory, and my immediate concern was, well, how do we get, because they didn't export it outside of Bolivia, how do I get supplied for the next five and a half months of shooting? And so Rodrigo kind of hooked up this mule train um, to supply us with Sindani for the rest of the shoot. And then by the end of the shoot, um, there, was, there were enough people in the crew sort of badgering me to, to like bring it to the United States. I'm like, why don't you bring this to the United States? Like, you can do that. And, and stupidly, um, I thought, yeah, I mean, how hard can that be? Because, you know, because I, you know, look at the back bar, you go to a restaurant, you look at the back bar of any restaurant, you see all these brands, and you think, well, it must be easy to bring a brand to market because look at all these brands, which is kind of like going out on the street and seeing all these cars and thinking it must be really easy to bring a car to the market. Just look at all these cars. Um, and I really had no idea what I was getting into. I really, really didn't. And if I knew then what I know now, um, well, I don't. So it, it doesn't matter. But um, I, I just something with Chase Gunn. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's just it's an interesting business. The spirit industry is a very interesting industry. There are ways in which it's like my day job, and there are ways in which it's really not. Uh, the chief being, you know, if you make a movie and you don't get into a festival um, or you don't get a distributor. You can still post your movie. Something you can put it on Vimeo. You can like you can still provide people with an opportunity to see it. You have a spirit, and you don't get on the back bar. You're dead. Like there's no there's no version of you out on the street like selling your. Yeah, no. I mean it, it's 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 so it's it's incredibly intense. It's very competitive, um, and and it's very primal. You know, you can make a show or a TV film, and if you have enough publicity behind it, you can kind of convince people that it's awesome, or at least they should see it, or if they don't like it, maybe they're wrong. You know, <laughs> something something you put in your mouth, like, there's no convincing somebody that they like it when they put it in their mouth and they go, that's horrible. You know, there's so it has to, it has to really work, like, you really have to have something that people enjoy, or you're, you're just not going to make it, so... Again, just by chance, we lucked out. It took us so long. It, it took me so long to get the importer's license from the U.S. government that in the intervening five and a half years, the mixology culture had changed so much. If I'd gone out with this in 2008, I would not have had the same response as when we went out with it in 2014. Like, cocktail culture had just changed. And people were much more receptive than they would have been six years before. So we got lucky that way. And we also got lucky that for the mixology culture, here was something that they'd never heard of that was 500 years old. So it kind of met both of these metrics for like, okay, that's interesting. you know. And then the fact that you can mix it with anything um, and use it as a base spirit and all kinds of cocktails. Like this was all, I didn't know that. Like I was just drinking it all night. Like, I had no idea what it was, really. And I went back to Bolivia just a couple of weeks ago to visit the distillery for the first time. And that was really helpful, because there was kind of a missing chunk of the narrative for me about what it was and how it was made. And it was really helpful to go back and interview people and shoot uh, material to, to sort of complete the story of what it was and why it's so distinctive. So, you know, it's been... It's fun to 
learn new stuff. Like it's been a it's been a new it's been a new thing. Uh, I think we'll do some audience Q and A now. Uh oh. Is that fine? <laughs> yeah, but I need a... <laughs> two more. Yeah. We can talk about movies, booze, whatever you want. Whatever you want. Shaving light men shaving their legs in fourteen-year-olds' yeah. bedrooms. Okay. Oh, uh, yeah. No, uh, it was brought up that you like to look back on your movies and think about what you can change about it. Is there anything that you would change the haywire? Uh, look it back. Well. <laughs> It sounds awful to say I wouldn't change a thing. Um, no, not really. Um, it was, it was, it, it, for, for better or worse, it is what we set out to do. Um, and, and I don't, the things that I look at, I think are so, there, there's, there's shots, like literally just shots. Like there'll be a, shot where I go, camera should have been two feet to the left and a foot lower. You know, like that. You know what I mean? So there's, but that's, that's, it has nothing to, like, the, 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 the gestalt of the movie, like, the thing is, is pretty much exactly what I hoped it would be. And so, no, that it's not one of those I look back on and go, I need to, if I could rebuild it, I would rebuild it. I, I don't. I don't feel that way about it. You know, like I said, that doesn't mean it's a masterpiece. It just means I don't. I don't look back on it and go, I fucked it up. You know, and there are some that you do. I mean, it's it's like I said. It's sometimes you don't understand what you were doing until years later, or you think, oh, I. That scene. That scene. That pivotal scene actually should have been about. This, like there was in Contagion, there was a scene that ultimately got cut. It was the scene after Lawrence Fishburne has been ambushed on CNN by Jude Law, and where where Jude like finds out that Lawrence Lawrence's wife had told somebody that there was going to be a problem in Chicago and told them to get out of town. Like it's a bad scene. Like he gets completely <laughs> eviscerated, you know, publicly on camera. And there used to be a scene. After that, where, Don't thank worry. God. Uh, <laughs> oh, we're getting a new one. Okay, um, thank you. There used to be, salute. Um, there used to be a scene after that where, where um, Lawrence and Sanaa were at home, and he was kind of upset with her about the fact that she, like, told a friend. And, the, and then, but I cut it because I, at the time I was like, Something wrong. There's something wrong with this. It's just that there's something wrong with this scene. So I just cut the scene completely. And what I realized six months after the movie came out was what the scene should have been was Lawrence consoling her, not being mad at her, but saying, "I get it. I totally get it. She's your best friend. Of course you." And we ended up incorporating it into a scene that was reshot later with Jennifer Ely, where he goes. My loved one told a loved one, you know, these things happen. And so sometimes it just takes a while, unfortunately, for you to realize, like, oh, you know what, the solve was really this. Um, and the point is not to be upset that that happens, that I thought of it six months too late. The point is to just mark that and go, remember that next time you have, remember that next time you have a feeling that the scene's not quite right, maybe you should invert the dynamic, the emotional dynamic. Maybe you're maybe you're looking at it the wrong way. So you just add it onto your list of solves when you when you sort of hit a wall on a set, which happens. You know, you have a scene that's just not coming alive or it's not working. And I have my list of like think questions to ask myself: Why is this? Why is this not? Why is this inert? Like why is this not working? I've had a, I've had the, had it happen where I had a scene that wasn't working. Couldn't figure out why, and realized we're just in the wrong location. If you take this exact same scene and move it from an office to this other location, now it works. And and that was just by accident because we couldn't figure the scene out. And we, me and one of the actors, went to the restroom to talk about it. And as we were talking about it, I looked around and went, "Oh, well, this scene should take place in the restroom." 
Like if you take the exact same text, but they're in the restroom and one of them is off screen in a stall and you never even see him, suddenly this works and that's what it was. So, you know, I'm just you just keep building that checklist. Or you can make it German, right? Well, we're gonna see if that works. <laughs> I think we have time for two more, so make them okay. good. Um, next right. Hi, so I'm really curious, um, after Sex Lives and Videotape, um, what brought you to making Schizopolis? Um, it's a really wonderful film, but given I feel like where your trajectory was going, it seemed like a like you took you sort of took a step down for a second. But I feel like it's one of probably my favorite movie. Well, you're biased. He he's from Baton Rouge. Yeah, he went yeah. to my high school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what happened was I was making uh, the underneath, and which I knew wasn't going to work before I even started, which which was a new experience, like six weeks before we started shooting, like, this isn't going to work. Um, and I couldn't tell anybody that. Is there desperation at that age? No, it was just, I, I, I was just, I think I wasn't sure. I kind of, I was going to do quiz show, and I kind of got pushed off of that uh, in a very unceremonious way. And <laughs> I went hard high on quiz show, did you? Man. No, uh, I wasn't, uh, he wasn't on my radar at that point in 1994. But um, I was so I, again. I was sort of looking for something to do, and and so I jumped on that. And I knew it was kind of. I just knew it. It wasn't going to work, but I couldn't say that out loud. It's not really fair to say that out loud when a lot of people are working really hard. And so. Halfway through the shoot, I was sitting on set, not happy, and thinking, okay, if you're 31 years old, and this is, you've wanted to make films since you were 13, and you're sitting on a set and you're not happy, you need to do something to, like, change shit up. Like, this is on you. And so, halfway through shooting, I started planning Schizopolis, the point being I'm going to go back to Baton Rouge where I started making films and I'm going to get together a crew of five or six people who I started making films with and I'm basically going to make my second first film. I'm going to purposefully annihilate everything I've done up to this point and start over again. And so that became a really, that was a really important film for me to make, regardless of, of how it's perceived or what it is. It was just important for me to, to, to start over, and, and that's how I looked at it. It was like I'm starting over again. And, the, and the, the, the freedom of it continues, the, the, the detonation of that still reverberates today. It absolutely informed, although you would not think so, out of sight. Because I go and make Schizopolis and I make Grey's Anatomy, these two movies that I made, one for 300 grand and the other for 400 grand. And then the opportunity to pursue the job of getting out of sight comes up. And I pursue it. I have to wait for everyone in town to pass, which they do. And finally, I'm like the last man standing and I get to make out of sight. Now, the trick of that was to do a sort of, you know, Jedi mind thing so that on set, moment to moment, creatively, I'm making decisions as though I'm on the set of Schizopolis. That there is no studio, there is no clock, there is no $48 million budget. Just in the moment, to sit there and just go, what do I want to see, what do I want to do, what do I, what do I think is interesting, and just block all that other stuff out. And so the, the reverberation of the freedom of making Schizopolis absolutely resulted in out of sight and everything that followed it. Like, it really did. It was just like, fuck it. Like, there's, you can't second guess yourself. You can only make something you would stand in line to see. And that's all you can do. And, and time will, it's a business. And if you, you know, I, I, very few people leap from mountaintop to mountaintop. Like, usually some stuff works, some stuff doesn't. And like I said, you just gotta like plow through my, my, my method and my criteria never changes. Like I said, it's just based on, well, if I saw this, I would like it. 
um, and you just go from there. But Schizopolis was, you know, a real, um, it was, it was, like I said, it was a bomb. Like it just, it was intentionally designed to, let's put it this way, I can, the things that came before it, I'm not sure I can defend, but I feel like I can defend everything that came after it. You know, it really got me back on compass, you know. And nobody's encouraging you to do that. All anybody's encouraging you to do is whatever you did before that worked. Nobody's going like, you need to grow. <laughs> They're just like, why don't you do that thing that you did before that people liked? Um, I had somebody say that to me once. Why don't you, I don't understand. Why don't you just make traffic again? <laughs> you know, well, A, I made it already. And B, like, that's not interesting, you know. And that stuff's alchemy. You can't, you, you can't conjure it, you know. Things line up, planets line up, and then sometimes they don't line up. But you can't, if you could conjure it every time, you'd never make something that people don't like or don't want to see. So it's kind of, you have to be, well, in the history of the universe, panic has never solved anything, ever. So the key is to sort of relax, and like once you, the sensation could be sort of like being pushed out of an airplane and realizing, you know, your parachute's not going to open. But then ironically, once you've reconciled yourself to the fact that it's not going to open and you're going to hit the ground and that's going to be it, once you've really come to peace with that, then it opens. We have one question. One, one more. So you better nail it. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> uh, what benefits have you found working in television as opposed to working in film? Well, when I finished, this is the TV versus film. Uh, when, I, when I was finishing Che, I had a, like Stalin, I had a five-year plan. Um, and... I read you were done with serious films after that. You said, yeah, I was. just fun. I am. Um, <laughs> You're still done with them. Yeah. Um, no more awards for you. It's not even that. It's just, why, why make a movie that makes people feel bad? Um, <laughs> you know, my five-year plan was, was to be doing something else by 2013. Now, some things happened subsequent to Che that made me realize I should stick to that plan for sure. And, um, but what happened was I thought it was going to be uh, a different, point. you know, I thought, oh my God, maybe I'll try the painting thing. You know, I, I was just going to try something else. And, what, and then what ended up happening was in May of 2013, um, just as Candelabro was, was about to air, um, and I'd been taking painting lessons from a, a very well-regarded um, painter and, and was excited about that, although intimidated by what was going to be required for me to become good. I could draw, and, and I had basic skills, but like the thing I do for my day job, I realized, you know, some of you may have heard of it, you know, the 10,000-hour rule. I realized it's going to be years of steady work before I'm going to generate anything that I really want anybody to look at. You know, even though I have basic moves and I know how to draw, this, this is, if you're going to be good, like, this is going to take a lot of work. And I was, I, and I was like, okay. And then the script for the Nick came in. And I was the first person to see it. And I thought, this is just about everything I'm interested in. It's just everything I'm interested in. It's about race. It's about class. It's about knowledge creation. Um, it's it's visual. Um, it's brutal. It's it, it's I, I I just I can see it. I mean that's the thing when somebody sends you something to look at and consider, it really comes down to whether or not as soon as you start, can you see it, and I can just see it. And so I told my wife, look, I I know I was supposed to sort of be stepping back from all this. <laughs> but I just read something I really like, and we're going to start shooting in four and a half months, and it's ten hours. Um, and she's like, if you're excited about it, then that's 
then you got to go do it. And what I found was in the, in the TV space, at least at this network, there just wasn't any fear. Like, it just reached a point in the film business, like, everybody's, they're just scared of everything. Like, they're just so nervous. The economics of it are, are really difficult and, and sort of moving people to a place where the idea of making a movie that's sort of not down the middle becomes very, very risky. And there's this whole issue of, you know, well, how's this going to play in China? Um, and what I found in the TV world was they were, they're like, make it as crazy as you can make it. Like, that's what we're selling. We're selling you making something as crazy as you can make it. And so they were, their only complaints were when they felt something was kind of n normal, you know, like, they, they're like, you know, season, when we finished season one, and I had a conversation with Michael Lombardo, who was running HBO at that point, about season two, he goes, be bold. You know, never heard that from a studio. Um, so that, it just became a space that was really fun to play in because everybody was excited. And look, again, the economics are better. Three million people watch an episode of The Nick, that's a very good evening for Cinemax. Three million people go see your movie, depending on what the movie is, not such a great weekend. Um, and so I'm just trying to go, I'm just trying to follow, like, where are people telling stories that I think are interesting stories? I'm just trying to follow that. I'm not a snob. I don't, you know, we were talking, I made K Street 13 years ago, and because at the time that seemed like, you know, HBO making that show, like they were excited about the show and we were trying something kind of weird, and, and they were really supportive. And I'm just, I'm chasing stories and and want to work with people that aren't scared so right now um, as we all know there's some really interesting stuff happening in the tv space um, and so i what i would like to see happen is sort of what we did on the girlfriend experience and what we did on the nick which is sort of auteur driven tv like filmmakers, directors that really take on a show and, and do the whole thing. Um, I think that, I just think you get a better result. You get something that's more unified and more specific as opposed to having multiple directors coming in. But um, it's, you know, I'm having fun and we're going to keep our plan. We, we, had a, we had a six year plan when we started the Nick, and I've put that forward and supposedly, you know, we're going to pick up again next fall with season three. Um, we had it all mapped out. Every every two years, you'd kind of blow up the universe and start over again. And um, so that's, we're, we're, I, I want to do it, you know, so hopefully it's going to get done. That's it. Okay. <laughs> all right, thanks to St. Johnny, Nighthawk, Art Hal. Bill Woods, Steven Soderbergh. Uh, there'll be a after party downstairs with delicious Singani.